Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Today's episode is a live event. Uh, it is all about a 1950s vice scandal in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. So Pacific Northwest listeners, uh, this one's for you. Also, anyone who enjoys gangsters, noir, gambling, double crosses, intrigue, etc., this one is also for you. Enjoy, folks. Um, tonight I want to talk about uh, the thing that I talked about in my very first ever Stumptown Stories, which was years ago, I forget. Um, and that ties in with amusements in local Portland bars and drinking establishments, uh, much like the place that we're in right now. Um, there, has, there have always been gambling establishments in Portland, Oregon. There has been, I know, this is shocking. This is shocking. I'm sorry if any of you guys need some smelling salts or a fainting couch, but I'm here to tell you that there has been gambling in Portland since there has been a Portland. Now, for a good chunk of the 1800s, gambling, by the way, my notes are on my phone. I'm not, like, looking at Twitter. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Google Doc. Um, now, in the 1800s, Gambling, it was popular and legal. Then in the 1900s, gambling is popular and illegal. But just because it's illegal doesn't mean it's not sanctioned. Just be, it doesn't mean it's not allowed. Uh, starting in the early 1900s, Portland actually got a pretty robust, um, let's call it unofficial licensing system for anybody who wanted to like shuffle cards, throw dice, play games, that sort of thing. Um, if you wanted to have gambling at your establishment, of course you did, you would make a deal with the authorities, uh, the powers that be, and basically they would just say, okay, you give us such and such every month, and you get to have this and this type of gambling. I'm not talking about something that's just like, oh, you give some money to the cops and say, oh, you saw nothing. I'm talking about a very routinized system where they actually had set prices for different types of gambling games that you would pay to the authorities every single month so you could play poker or craps or what have you. Now, I hope that this doesn't get a little too, too wonky here, but I'm gonna quote from a um, Portland State University thesis from a guy called uh, Joseph Urris, and he wrote something called Trouble in River City, which is all about uh, what I wanna talk to you about tonight. He says, quote, Vice and corruption serve the consumer by providing goods and services otherwise not available through legitimate means. They serve the lower strata of society by providing alternate paths to wealth and power. Vice and corruption serve the interest of the corporate and the wealthy class through risk reduction and certainly in what would otherwise be an uncertain open market. They serve the political elite by securing financial and support others, by securing financial and other support through a network at once highly structured and informal of commitments, sanctions, and mutual rewards. Vice and corruption serve existing crime networks by giving them access to the politically and economically powerful. At the same time, they offer a measure of protection to all involved from serious formal sanction." Unquote. So when I'm saying unofficial like licensing system, I'm actually not joking. This is totally like an unofficial licensing system. Um, this also applies to things like narcotics, drugs, prostitution, and also abortion. 
Yeah, I know, that's a fucked up thing to think about. It used to be that you had to go to like mobsters with anachronistic hats if you wanted to get abor an abortion. Yeah. Don't worry, it'll be like that again soon. Not actually, not actually funny. All right. But, let's talk about some of the other vices that you could have. So, um, at all sorts of saloons and bars and that sort of thing, there are any number of gambling games that you could amuse yourself with, like this thing back here, which was known as a punch board. So you would get one of those cardboard boards, and it would have a little bunch of like little fingers you could stick into it, and uh, there would be a piece of rolled up paper inside of it. You would take a little piece of rolled up paper, and it would just tell you if you were a winner, or it would tell you if you, you know, were not a winner. And then you would have the appropriate emotional reaction. This was fun. Uh, also, this was uh, of dubious legality, but again, popular. Here's another um, semi-legal, kind of illegal amusement device uh, that was really popular in all sorts of bars and saloons. Yes, that is a pinball table. Um, gambling machines were extraordinarily popular um, in Portland and a lot of other cities. And gambling and, uh, excuse me, pinball and slots were kind of sort of the same thing for a while. Um, lots of pinball machines, they would give you tokens or prizes or cash uh, if you did well. Uh, also, uh, guys would sometimes bet on scores, on trick shots, that sort of thing. Uh, so, pinball was oftentimes regulated in the same way that gambling, that gambling machines were. Um, and a lot of the same companies that made slots also made pinball. They were lumped together. Uh, another big draw of gambling machines is that you did not have to be super sophisticated or know people to lose money on them. So, if you want to lose a bunch of money on poker or blackjack or 21, you got to actually like know how that shit works and know what the rules are and interact with other humans. But anyone can walk into a bar, go up to the shiny machine, goes and it goes bing, and put their money into it. So gambling, uh, gambling like slots and pinball are hugely popular. Now let's say that you want these fun games like you know punch boards or pinball or that sort of thing in your bar, and of course you do. During the 1950s in Portland, Oregon, you're gonna go through this guy. This is a guy named Jim Elkins. Jim Elkins is kind of like, kind of sort of the main character of the story tonight. Um, he came to Portland um, from Arizona. Uh, he used to live down there. He got involved with some trouble. He was doing a robbery. It went bad. He ended up shooting a guard, went to jail. Uh, eventually got out of jail. He and his brother Fred came up to Portland and they started getting involved in the local uh, amusement machine industry. Uh, their first gig, Jim and his brother Fred, was working for a guy called Emlo who would do maintenance, repair, uh, servicing of gambling machines, pinball and slots. And so Jim and Fred, they're working for him, they have a good gig, a good gig going, and uh, they decide that they want you know, certain room for advancement. So what they ended up doing was pointing a shotgun at their boss's head, saying, hey, you are retired, your business is ours now, and then Jim Elkins suddenly becomes Portland's king of gambling, and prostitution, and narcotics. <laughs> yeah, and 
he actually becomes a pretty effective local crime lord. Um, for instance, if he develops a good working relationship with the cops. Um, for instance, if he had underlings who were um, making a bit too much noise or making a bit too much chaos, he was fine on turning them in. For example, at one point, he had a bunch of underlings at a bar that he uh, served, and uh, they killed a guy for his watch. Uh, the guy ended up being actually a sort of important sea captain. He was like the head of a boat, and his absence was noted. Uh, and Elkins was totally fine with turning his goons in to the local authorities. Um, if various racketeers or madams were not giving him a, you know, what he was owed every month, he would just call up the cops and he'd say, Hello, Portland police. I happen to know that there is gambling and or prostitution at this place. Maybe you should go be police at them. And the authorities would basically act as his enforcers. Um, also, when other people wanted to maybe compete with him, well, he was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, for instance, there was another guy who wanted to, uh, you know, start doing pinball stuff in Portland. There was a guy called Stan Terry. And um, he ended up getting harassed from Elkins, um, walked into a police precinct to report that. Uh, he was given a telephone. Guess who it was? It was Elkins who said, hey, motherfucker, if you want to do pinball in Portland, Oregon, you go through me. So, oh yeah, also at one point there were some dudes from Minneapolis who tried to show uh, set up a shop in Portland, Oregon, um, and then Jim Elkins just set their bar on fire. <laughs> so yeah, he's like our pretty successful homegrown racketeer, and he also um, is friends with this guy. Uh, this is William Langley, and Elkins and Langley, they end up opening up a place called the China Lantern um, out in uh, Beaverton, and it's one of their pretty successful establishments. Langley later on, though, has to break off his former relation, formal relationship with Elkins uh, because later on he becomes Portland's district attorney. <laughs> this, this will be a little important later on. But just keep in mind, the guy who's going to become Portland's district attorney was Buddy Buddy Bar Owner with Portland's big old pinball gangster. Um, Anyways, Elkins, he's doing great, he's doing wonderfully. It's uh, early 1950s. Uh, he is like, you know, king of illegal fun things. And if this was a gangster movie, uh, Tony Montana would be buying a pet tiger, snorting a bunch of cocaine, and it would be a montage set to push it, push it to the limit. Okay? So this is a high point. This is like the high point of act one leading into act two. Uh, so you know what comes next in the screenplay. The big turn, right? The thing where things start going south for our anti-hero, because Jim Elkins, he gets a little bit too ambitious. He has, he has his machines, he has his stuff, he has his like ladies and racketeering in all kinds of places in Portland, Oregon, but there is one venue in particular uh, that he doesn't really have any influence and that he's not making any money from, and that's the Portland Teamsters Labor Temple. The Portland Teamsters Labor Temple is this gigantic social hall where a bunch of like, you know, blue-collared rough dudes who probably have like beards and enjoy beer uh, hang out and socialize all the time and Elkins wants to move on in there. Now, to do that, it's not like he can just roll up like he can any other saloon. He has to respect the power of the Teamsters. He has to deal with what back then were some of the most powerful union leaders in uh, in the United States. 
He has to deal with Teamsters President Dave Beck, and he has to deal with Regional Vice President Frank Brewster. So, what does he do? He goes up to Seattle, he has a meeting with Frank Brewster, the Regional Vice President of the Teamsters, and Brewster says, we will be happy to partner with you in Portland, Oregon. We will be happy to work with you. You can put your machines in our establishment. We will help you grow and expand and become an even better salesman of illegal fun things. <laughs> but we want something from you. We got this guy. We have this dude. His name is Thomas Maloney. And, uh, you know, set him up with a bar in Portland, Oregon. And he'll be in charge of everything there. Just give him something to do. It's fine. And this is the point of the movie where our anti-hero is looking at the bad deal that you, the audience, knows is a bad deal, and you're hoping that he says no. But do you think he does that? No. No, no of course not. He says, yeah, this is fine. Everything's fine. Um, he agrees to let the Teamsters into Portland, Oregon. And by the way, I'm embellishing for dramatic effect. Just putting that out of you. I'm sorry. He agrees to let the Teamsters in Portland, Oregon, and in doing so, he has basically sealed his own fate because these guys are powerful. Um, they are able to do something that Elkins isn't. As successful as Elkins is being a racketeer, as successful as Elkins is tattling on his underseers, I guess that's the opposite of an overseer, uh, sicking the cops on his own people when they displease him, um, setting fire to his competition's bars, there's something that he can't do and that is set up a whole shit ton of picketers outside places they don't like. So the Teamsters are able to actually mobilize their people and say that certain, uh, certain places throughout Portland that aren't playing ball with them are gonna get a picket line. Um, for instance, as they're expanding their operation through Thomas Maloney, uh, at one point, uh, Stan Terry, remember him, he was a guy earlier who was also trying to set up uh, you know, pinball in Portland, Oregon, and got told that he had to go through Jim Elkins. Um, he actually gets his home place called the Mount Hood Cafe, where his pinball, play, pinball machines are, picketed by the Teamsters. And the owner at the time said that he couldn't get anything. He couldn't get bread, he couldn't get coffee. Because these guys are controlling supplies going in and out. So, Elkins realizes that he is dealing with an organization far more powerful than him, and in 1955, he wants out. He sells off a lot of his pinball machines to Stan Terry. He says, I wash my hands of this, and he says that he doesn't want to deal with any of this anymore. According to Elkins' own account, and keep in mind this might be bullshit, um, he sits down with Frank Brewster, and Frank Brewster says, quote, I'm going to tell you something. I make mares, and I break mares. And I make chiefs of police, and I make and I break chiefs of police. I've been in jail and I've been out of jail. Nothing scares me. If you bother my boys, if you embarrass my boys, you will find yourself wading across Lake Washington with a pair of concrete boots. Unquote. So he says he wants out, and then he like gets the most mobstery threat you could possibly get. So what does Elkins do? Well, he gets his local teamster contact, Thomas Maloney here to get a new apartment. He says, hey, there's this really great place called the King Tower, and you should move in there. And somehow Elkins, who is still 
you know, all buddy-buddy with the Teamsters, is able to actually convince Maloney to move into this very, very particular apartment. And Maloney does. And Elkins goes into the apartment right next door and sets up a whole bunch of recording equipment so he can eavesdrop on Maloney. So basically, he can spy on this local Teamster goon. He also starts wearing recording equipment on his person. For example, he claims to have this like Dick Tracy-esque watch that he actually used to record conversations. So suddenly, Elkins knows where Maloney is living and he knows that he is taking meetings with city officials, cops, etc. Because remember, Portland has this kind of unofficial licensing system when it comes to vice. And Elkins, he's thinking that the Teamsters, how dare they have meetings with city officials and set up the town and you know negotiate bribes? No, I'm the guy who has meetings with city officials and sets up the town and negotiates bribes. That's my job, fuckers. So. Elkins suddenly has all this like juicy stuff um, with his former associates, city officials, and his other former associates, the Teamsters, now his new competition, sitting down talking about gambling. And he does something which I think is really weird for a racketeer to do. He goes to the press. He contacts a pair of guys at the Portland Oregonian uh, called Walls Turner and William Lambert, and he says, I happen to have a bunch of recordings of Portland City officials <laughs> sitting down with Seattle Teamsters talking about setting up gambling in Portland, Oregon. Would you guys be at all interested in those tapes? And what do you think these investigative reporters said? They said, yes, we're absolutely interested in that. Of course we want dirt on that. You know? Of course we want, like, big, dramatic, splashy headlines talking about crime and corruption in Portland, Oregon, and, like, talking about the encroaching outsiders of the Seattle Teamsters. So, starting in 1956, there's all this, like, enormous reporting in the Portland Oregonian that is just shocked, shocked, that there's gambling going on in this city. <laughs> that they... Can you believe it? Can you believe it that cops and the district attorney, and like the sheriff and the mayor, they are all sitting down with Teamsters and talking about putting gambling in the great city of Portland, Oregon. So, okay, the old Oregonian reporting is really amusing to read. I got a kick out of going through a lot of it. Here's the thing, it's totally and completely hypocritical. It's totally like feigning shock and all that because uh, this is just the status quo of Portland, Oregon since there's been a Portland. There's always been gambling in Portland. Like, Jim Elkins managed, you know, the pinball and the punch boards and, you know, the cards and dice and all that. And he's just, like, kind of mad that competition is coming in. So, really, this is the Oregonian going um, crazy about just a change in management as opposed to a change in status quo. Um, by the way, Thomas Maloney, the Teamsters goon in Portland, um, he said about the Oregonian, quote, uh, the, Oregor uh, the Oregonians got to do is mess around with the Teamsters, and the first thing you know, them guys will be up there wanting 10 or 15 cents an hour, and the Oregonian can't afford it, so when they can't afford it, they'll have the pickets around their fucking joint, and the fucking, pa and the fucking paper will lay dead still, unquote. <laughs> Old-timey gangster talk is hard to quote. <laughs> but that was just it. That was just all bluster and whatnot. But here's the thing. 
as kind of like hypocritical and superficial as a lot of the Sorogonian coverage was, it got the attention of the feds. Uh, at the time, in the late 1950s, Robert Kennedy was looking into organized crime throughout the United States. And he needed a city that he would make an example of. And that city, with low-hanging fruit and easy-to-prosecute local gangsters, was Portland, Oregon. So, basically what ends up happening is Portland's chief of police, Portland's mayor, Fred Peterson, or former mayor, Fred Peterson, Portland's current mayor, Terry Shrunk, um, and District Attorney Langley and several other officials get summoned to Washington, D.C. to have U.S. Senators yell at them. This thing was called the McClellan Committee. And this was basically a lead-up into Robert Kennedy's later, more aggressive prosecution of organized crime, in particular the Teamsters throughout the United States. Um, so Kennedy just thought of this as like, you know, the, the appetizer. This is not going to be. This is not the main thing that he's doing. Uh, he has bigger fish to fry than Portland officials. But nevertheless, this is very embarrassing for Portland because it is our city officials. It is our mayor and former mayor, DA, and cops and the rest of it who are getting yelled at by U.S. senators. And the most dramatic moment of this is that a senator from South Dakota ended up yelling at District Attorney Langley, saying that the people of Portland, Oregon should fly their flag at half-mast as a gesture of public shame. <laughs> yeah. The mayor, the former mayor, uh, the chief of police, uh, and D.A. Langley, Elkins' old associate, and several, other, um, and several other officials are indicted on various corruption charges. Um, most of the time, those don't stick uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one big reason is that the Justice Department is not super-duper aggressively going after Portland City officials. Again, this is just a lead-up into like a bigger thing when they want to dig into organized crime throughout the United States. Um, but also, one of the biggest um, you know, witnesses against them was Jim Elkins. Now, Elkins, when he was burning his former associates, it looks like he was telling the truth. Uh, in fact, Robert Kennedy was originally kind of skeptical that this guy who'd been a racketeer and a gangster, oh, and by the way, a heroin enjoyer, um, was not making shit up. But, but they fact-checked a whole bunch of story, his story and found out, hey, it looks like this weirdo pinball racketeer heroin guy is actually telling us the truth. But nevertheless, he was not the most um, charismatic or photogenic witness, and a lot of those indictments didn't end up... Um, turning into prosecutions. Um, by the way, one of my favorite details about this is that uh, in Washington, D.C., District Attorney Langley, uh, as he is being excoriated by the McClellan Committee, uh, ended up losing his shit, got in a fight with an Oregonian reporter, and smashed a dude's $400 camera. Yeah, so yeah, that's a government official we once had. Um, also, though, this all got turned into a movie. Um, Later in 1957, a kind of terrible and shitty um, noir film uh, called Portland Exposé uh, was sort of an instantly dramatized version of what is now called the Portland Vice Scandal. And uh, this movie sucks, by the way. Uh, but, but it is weird to watch for somebody who knows the actual story. Because in the actual story, here's what happens. You have this bar owner 
who's just like this everyman, and suddenly a bunch of like thugs with fedoras come on into his place, and they start, you know, saying that he's gonna have all this stuff like pitball in his bar and all this other gambling, and they're demanding to take a cut, and then it just like goes from there. This heroic bar owner, he does surreptitiously record a whole bunch of these mobsters, and he's basically in the Jim Elkins role in the film. And in that film, the racketeer who turned on his associates is replaced with this like really virtuous main character. It's weird. Yeah. Also, um, because the movie needed a good ending, instead of like a bunch of indictments and shouting in Washington D.C., there's a giant shootout in a warehouse. Because narratively satisfying stuff. Um, Jim Elkins, after this, uh, did was in a spot of trouble. He was not the same like vice lord that he had been. You can't just tattle on your um, associates and expect to be like king of illegal fun things after that. Um, also, he had illegal illegally wiretapped Thomas Maloney's apartment, so he is facing actual federal charges for doing that. Um, Robert Kennedy, though, had his back, and Robert Kennedy basically made sure that Jim Elkins was fine and uh, didn't actually face any real legal entanglements for providing all that supremely useful information. Uh, however, post-1957, dude is kind of um, reduced. Uh, he ends up getting arrested for trying to rob a Safeway. I know, right? So this, this guy, you gotta feel bad for him. He's in his late 50s at this point. And he's gone from being like the local crime lord to being a guy who's like trying to steal from the cheese aisle. Um, <laughs> later on, he moved back to Arizona. And here's the thing about his death. So, Jim Elkins supposedly had a heart attack while driving and crashed his car into a telephone pole. This is an entirely plausible version of that story. However, if you read Portland Confidential by Phil Stanford, who's like a local journalist who used to work for the Oregon, well, Oregon Journal, he offers an alternative view of Elkins' death, which says that had Elkins had a heart attack, it was probably caused by the two bullets. Stanford, Stanford only offers us a single anonymous source about that story. Um, I've, I've actually interviewed Phil Stanford, I've talked to him about that. Um, he ended up, I felt very pleased about this, giving me the name of his anonymous, anonymous source, who was a real dude. However, I'm not gonna tell you it was. However, that's too good of an ending to be real, so I am inclined to believe it's bullshit because it is such a good, narratively satisfying ending to Jim Elkins' story. Um, after this, the politics of, uh, after this, the politics of Portland, Oregon changes uh, fairly dramatically in the 1960s and 1970s. Particularly in the 1970s, um, what we think of as Pacific Northwest progressivism starts to take shape. A lot of that has to do with resisting highways, but that's a story for a different time. Yes, I know, fuck the mountain freeway. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for going woohoo about that. Um, but, but, the amusements that this stuff was about are still with us. Today, if you want to waste your money in a bar in Portland, Oregon, if you want to gamble on a bunch of stupid games, punch boards are a thing of the past, but there is so much video poker that you can just sort of plunk dollars into. Uh, the thing is, is that now you don't need to go through gangsters, 
um, or unofficial channel to go through the state. Uh, also, this map behind me is a map of pinball tables in Portland, Oregon. Or rather, bars that have pinball tables in Portland, Oregon. And look at all those little, like, map pin thingies. Um, so, the demand, oh, by the way, prostitution is illegal, but whatever, we have Tinder now. Um, so, the demand for illegal fun stuff hasn't changed. The demand for amusements and gambling and pinball and blinky lights and all that, uh, that is still around. The thing that has changed are our norms, which I think is completely fascinating. That in a lot of ways, the Portland we've got now is very similar to the Portland that we had in 19, you know, 55, 56, 57, except now, if you want to waste a bunch of money on a machine that goes bing, well, it is your right to do so. Thank you all very much. All right, hope you folks enjoyed that. Uh, as always, we are at weirdhistorypodcast.com, where you can sign up for a monthly donation via Patreon. That would be most excellent. Patreon, by the way, is a voluntary subscription service, so you can support the content that you are really into. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Like the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. All that. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.